And please, for all that's holy, do not tell people I'm on PTO, but if you need something, please call me here. Don't do that. Cause that then you're, you are literally in the back of your brain, kind of in this steady state of anxiety. You may not label it as anxiety. So let's call it being aware and on guard that somebody might call. You can't actually rest. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Calling all thrill makers, fun creators, and attraction pros. Get ready for the ride of a lifetime at IAPA Expo 2023, the global attractions industry's premier event. Join us in Orlando, November 13th to the 17th for a week of learning, networking, and exploring trends and new technologies. Discover innovative solutions for growth that will supercharge your business and enhance your career. Register by November 10th at iapa.org slash iapaexpo. That's I-A-A-P-A dot org slash I-A-A-P-A-E-X-P-O to save up to 30% and get an additional $10 off with the code APROS. That's A-P-R-O-S. We'll be there, and we hope to see you too. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. All right. <laughs> Went in and out there a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. So I have a question for you. All right. I know that I have asked you about your favorite or or best leader that you've worked for. But have there been people, and no names needed, but have there been people that you've worked for that may have created some toxicity in the work environment that you, you were in? Yes. <laughs> I don't know how much more I should elaborate on that. Well, maybe just, maybe, maybe what they did to create such toxicity. Yeah, okay. Um... I can tell you there was one leader I had once who I didn't, I personally felt didn't understand the business very well and wasn't open to hearing my suggestions or this individual heard my suggestions, accepted it, and then implemented something entirely different altogether without giving me any reason or or discussing when I thought we were on one path and we were actually going down another path. And uh, we just had very, very different views of, of management, of leadership, of operations, of guest experience, all the things. That's pretty much all the things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and we, uh, we, it, it hasn't happened too many times in my career, but this individual and I, we simply did not fit in with each other. Well, it's interesting that you mention that they kind of 
said one thing or did another, or there wasn't alignment there, um, because that's one of the things our guest talks about today. Jen Whitmer is a TEDx speaker, a leadership consultant, and Enneagram consultant, um, which is a personality framework that she uses, um, and also somebody who is very into creating positive culture with complex people. And we talk a lot about leadership in this podcast. You might be wondering why she is on the Attraction Pros podcast. It was actually a recommendation from an, another colleague in the industry who saw her speak, and we thought her message was perfect for our audience, really about leadership and knowing yourself and, and creating a positive culture. And that's, again, one of the things that she talked about was when you do one thing and say another or those do, those things don't align, a lot of times that's where the toxicity comes from and certainly why people may leave an organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She also talked about conflict as a posture, which I, I had thought about or I, I had never really thought about it from that standpoint before, because when we think about conflict, we think about person versus person, whereas she says it's actually more like Red Rover, where you and the other individual have your arms linked and the conflict is on the other side. And you're both teaming up together to attack the conflict uh, or to challenge the conflict and resolve the conflict rather than an individual against another individual. Whereas, you know, there's there's a winner and a loser. And if, if, if it's as a posture, then the loser is the conflict itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that she talks about, which I'm so glad that she brought up, was about the importance of rest. And she really defines what that is, um, saying that sometimes a vacation is not rest, right? Sometimes a vacation, you're so hyped up on, you know, all the cool things that you're doing in the adventure that that's not actually restful. Um, but she does go into some really key areas of what rest is, what rest should look like, uh, because ultimately, at the end of the day, if we're not rested, we're not effective. Yeah. And, and there's such a, I think this is largely an American problem that we are, we are workaholics. It is, uh, you know, you want to, you want to use as little PTO as possible and you want to work as many hours and you always want to be present. And if, when you, in those times when you are on vacation, you've got your laptop and, you know, you got it, you know, propped up by the pool, by the beach, you know, whatever it is, you're always responding to emails then you're not resting and <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're not actually recharging yourself to then be more productive. I, you know, any, any good idea that I've had, uh, you know, has, has come from times when I was not actively working. It's been during a time, maybe I was on vacation or just a, a walk around my neighborhood. Or sometimes, you know, you're in the shower or like yeah. for me, walking the dog, you know, I have a lot of, you know, of my, what I think are great ideas or breakthrough ideas in those environments, but it's when, as Jen talks about, you're feeling safe, right? You're not feeling like you have to defend yourself in some way, but you're in a very safe space. And that's when your brain can flourish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get to this interview with Jen, I'll ask you the same question is if you've had that leader that you felt uh, created a toxic culture in the workplace. I will say yes. Uh, I will also say that I've been in a situation where multiple leaders, because they were not aligned created a toxic culture or, or an environment where it was very difficult to see which way we were supposed to go um, because each one of them had a slightly different view of how it was supposed to go. Like you talked about, they all viewed operations and guest experience and, and the employee experience. They all view that very, very differently. And so as a middle manager in that role, it was very difficult to navigate, well, who do I follow? 
right? Where do I go? <laughs> yeah. What do I do? You know? And so, yes, I've been in that absolute situation and, um, the, the, the unfortunate thing is that they all at heart had the best interest in mind for the, for the company, but they couldn't see clear enough. Maybe, maybe they didn't, they didn't red rover their conflict and they didn't, you know, look at the conflict as a, as the, um, or the problem as the, as the issue, they made it about the people. And that became, I think what created the toxic environment. Yeah. Yeah. So should we get to this interview? Let's do it. All right. Hey, Jen, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. We are so excited to have you and dive into this conversation. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and your career? Well, you know, the long and twisted tale uh, to tell us quickly is I started my career as a music educator and I taught kindergarten through eighth grade music. And then I had three kids in three years. And so I stayed home for a bit and then had another and went back into school administration. So I was a young mom and I was a school leader and working with really the best leader I'd ever had. I, um, he was wise, he was kind, um, and just really demonstrated a lot of the leadership qualities um, overtly and covertly. He was very clear about what he was doing and would um, share, here's why I'm telling you this, uh, and really develop leaders, and um, but also would kind of come through the back door and, and help you along if the front door was going to be a little challenging. He was just one of those really great leaders. Um, and we developed this amazing culture at this, at this school, and then as great leaders often do, he moved on, and we had a new leader who um, was unskilled in a lot of ways and unhealed and really led from uh, that place of fear rather than a place of um, confidence or security or even skill set. And what, um, so our culture started to deteriorate and what was really my dream job turned into a toxic and abusive environment. And it was really devastating, honestly. And I got an up close and personal seat to watch what, a, how a leader maintains culture or can change culture for good or for ill. And uh, so when I left education, I um, had gone back to school because, you know, educators do that. And I was like, get a third master's. That's how, that's going to solve all the problems. And uh, so I studied communication and culture and had really become fascinated with conflict resolution, how culture impacts that, how that impacts the, the symbiotic relationship between communication and culture. And um, at the same time, personally had started doing work with the Enneagram, which is a personality framework. And I started speaking and consulting, really starting with conflict, but then my own personal work of healing from this, you know, workplace trauma situation with the Enneagram, I started to see the connection between the deeper rooted personality and how that comes out specifically in conflict. And then started to see how, well, it's not actually just about conflict. It's really about leadership dealing with conflict. And then it's really how leadership impacts culture. And so there's this evolution of really um, coming back to seeing a culture thrive over helping people and helping people get there versus just kind of doing it the way we do it and the culture really deteriorates and or becomes even worse. So that's how I 
that's how I got here. I have a question that uh, it might be a broad question, but it is related to your specific circumstance and, and really kind of the, I would say the juxtaposition between these two leaders that you referred to, uh, you know, at, at that school and in that education environment is we can probably all say we've had that leader referencing the first leader that you talked about. And we can probably all say we had that second leader as well. <laughs> and I, the thought that crossed into my mind is it seems like the, you know, the way you describe it, that it's, it's, blatantly obvious that they're two very different types of people for that second leader. How does a person like that even end up in a leadership position when, when they, they are clearly so different from perhaps that, you know, that, that first leader. Yeah. Um, I mean, how long is your podcast? Um, so <laughs> I will, I will keep it short. Um, you know, I have my own theories. I've done a lot of research into that. Cause I asked that same question. How did we not know? How did we not see? Um, because I was in that role for five-ish years before I left. And so at the beginning, you don't notice that. And so there are a few things that I, looking back, see the difference. So one is um, there was just a lot of privilege in that space. And so, and he told a good story. So he could kind of talk his way into, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. And he was... Um, that particular leader was really malleable. If this is what Matt wants me to be, I'm going to be that. If this is what Josh wants me to be, I'm going to be that. So he really did know how to work people well, um, which is what we want leaders to do is to really connect with people. And so, but he would use that in a way that was to really to protect himself from any kind of um, risk or blame or having to actually deal with things, it would much be more of a, a put off, um, kind of push it off to somebody else that's someone else's responsibility type of type of leader, um, rather than the leader that digs in and sees the problem owns their own part of it and starts to try to figure out how to make change. And that, that was one of the big differences that I noticed. So people who end up in leadership. Sometimes people are promoted because they were really good at what they did in the previous role. And they're like, Oh, you should be, you'll be a great leader because you were a great designer or you were a great teacher or you were whatever it was. And then they have to lead people and it's an entirely different skill set. And so I think those are some of the ways leaders like that get in there. And then my goodness, I have so much empathy. Aren't you scared when you're put in a situation where you're like, Oh crap, I don't know what I'm doing. And so you revert you revert to ways that are coping mechanisms that may or may not be healthy until you learn a better way. And so because he'd gone through several leadership transitions, I think he hadn't ever had the time to develop the skills to deal with some of the difficulties of leadership, particularly around diverse thought and the conflict that comes from diverse thought. But you have to do that to have any kind of innovation, to create any kind of community. You have to learn how to do that type of conflict work. And so I think those are some of the ways that people come into leadership when they A, may not be ready, or B, haven't, don't have the training to do the work of leadership. Well, and you mentioned one of the things that really happens a lot, or at least used to happen. I think we're getting a little bit better in the attractions industry where, you know, you've got a really great ride operator. You've got somebody who's really great on the line or a designer. Let's put them into a leadership role. Um, 
And I think there's also that piece of the uh, the people that are in the leadership roles that are promoting people may not necessarily know what to look for, mm-hmm. right? And so they're looking for something maybe that they shouldn't be looking for, or they're looking for the wrong thing. Um, they're putting the the priority in the wrong place for that particular leader to say, yes, you could be in a leadership role, or I should say individual to be in the leadership role. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we we tend to overlook is that breaking that cycle, right? Of, you know, getting someone into a leadership role that really should be there. And then they'll probably be a little bit more qualified to find the next leader and the next leader and the next leader and, and, and kind of continue the the cycle that way. So um, one of the things I am curious about though, is you you talked about, you really started with, with conflict, you know, and that was part of your, your initial study in, in practice. So what do you find are some of the things that, or maybe I should ask it this way. What are some of the reasons that people resist conflict or or don't don't <laughs> embrace conflict that you can help them turn around a little bit oh well as a a card carrying recovering conflict avoider uh <laughs> that i can name a lot of them and really i i talk about this in my tedx and in the keynote i i do most people don't like conflict there are there's a small percentage of people ever, around the world when i have done this type of work about 10 percent, maybe 15 percent of people are like yeah let's go like they enjoy the rumble of it but that's a pretty small percentage so if you've got a company of 20 you know or a team of, of 10 that's going to be one or two people that are like yeah conflict is great and it serves us <laughs> where you have the rest of us who are like that feels uncomfortable you know or that feels dangerous or that um it depends on how conflict was handled in your first job how conflict was handled in your family of origin all of that impacts how you approach conflict and then if you don't feel skilled on top of this feels uncomfortable well avoiding that and shoving it under the rug feels like the best course of action. Or a lot of times we have a culture of nice. I'm, I just, I'm supposed to be nice. I'm supposed to say things, I'm just nice. And, and confronting someone isn't nice, especially women have this problem because we've been enculturated that you have to be nice. Whereas confrontation is actually means to come with somebody face to face. That's what the word means with con front the front. So a kind confrontation is to come to somebody and say, Hey, we're struggling. Um, we're not, this isn't working. Is it working for you? That's a confrontation, but we avoid that because we don't know what's happening. It feels uncomfortable. We're not actually sure how to have that type of conversation, or we've been told that's unkind or that's unprofessional or whatever other story gets put in that category that makes us avoid being kindly direct and saying, I'm struggling here. This isn't working for me. Um, So knowing that you are going to avoid conflict is the first step to saying, okay, I can be brave and have this type of confrontation. And then the way that I like to help people through that is to see conflict first as a posture. So then a set of skills to do. So the posture of conflict resolution is almost like Red Rover, you know? So it's like the two of us together, elbow to elbow, arm in arm. And the other side is the problem, not people, it's whatever the issue is that it, that we're facing out there. That's that's how we approach conflict. So if you have a posture of arm in arm, now we're on the same team. We're working together, and our common enemy, quote unquote, is the problem. And 
defining the problem now becomes about the resources, the time, whatever it is versus you as a human. And so when we have that posture of the two of us against the problem out there, we have a very different way of approaching a conversation and it feels more connected. And the problem, conflict is usually caused by the the kind of war between limited resources and differing goals. So I don't have enough time, money, people, or space, and we want to use that time, money, people, or space differently. So how do we figure that out? How do we come to a, a, a conclusion about that together to make something that's best? That's a problem-solving conversation, not an I hate you conversation. And that, so when you approach it that way, if you can kind of literally visualize that in your mind, you start to calm down a little bit about what a conflict is. As I'm hearing you talk about this and I'm thinking about uh, kind of past experiences and I have, you know, just a few kind of scattered examples sort of coming to mind. Uh, the way I see it is that regardless of, of your seniority, this tends to kind of move up and down. It can be an individual who has, yes. uh, who has conflict with their superior, or it could be an individual mm -hmm. who has who has an issue that needs to be addressed with a subordinate. Yeah. Is there is there a difference in the way that those are addressed or are we talking about the exact same thing regardless if I'm going up or going down? Yeah, I think in general, they're addressed in the same way. So as a, as a big idea, yeah, because you're still dealing with a person. You still have to kind of come to them and say, I'm seeing a problem. I would like to solve it with you. That's still the approach, whether you're the leader talking to a subordinate, you're a colleague, you know, laterally, or you're managing up, you're still saying, hey, I'm seeing a problem. Are you seeing this as a problem? How can we solve this together? Now, how your particular corporate policy, culture, organizational structure works, whether implicitly or explicitly, are where the nuances are. So if you've got a big culture that is solve it on your own, solve it on your own, solve it on your own, you're going to resist going outside of that longer than somebody who is like, no, just come to me, come talk to me. It's so it, the nuances of that is where that matters. But I think in general, you have to go to that person first and say like, Hey, is this, are you seeing this as a problem? 80% of the time it's a miscommunication. 80% of conflict is a miscommunication of some sort. And then you're like, oh, I, I thought it was this. Oh, no, I thought it was this. Great. Actually, we're on the same page done. You know, it's the 20% that we're actually really afraid of, which keeps us from dealing with it. But most of the time it's like, oh, oh, that's not what I meant. Or that's not what I said. Or I thought we said this. And so once you get practice at that, you start to have this experience where your body is not so afraid of conflict because most of the time it's going to be okay. And then you start to get better at the times where it's a little harder and you do have to work through it a little differently. It's so interesting how you talk about 80% of those conflict situations or miscommunications. I didn't know there was a number to it, but I knew it was really high. Yeah. Um, uh, I worked with a leader one time who said, you know, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to talk to people, but sometimes the easiest thing to do is to talk to people, you know? Yeah. So it's both sides of those, that same coin. Um, I'd like to kind of turn the, turn the page a little bit. And, um, you know, we've talked about conflict, but I also want to get into this concept of joyosity, uh, oh. something that you have trademarked. Mm -hmm. It's, it's your, <laughs> it's your, um, it's your wheelhouse. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and how, how that helps people. Yeah. So conflict kind of comes under the umbrella of joyosity. So joyosity is really 
creating positive culture with complex people. That's what, so how do we create this kind of culture where people are engaged, they're having an experience that is joyful and they are welcomed as whole people and willing to explore in that space. So that's what I call the three E's of joyosity, which is exploration of the humans, of the people and who we are as people, the engagement skills that we need, emotional regulation, communication skills, conflict falls under that decision-making qualities, and then the experience that we craft, which you all as an audience are experts at crafting an experience. And so the experience of work is just as much a place that we can cultivate and craft. And so in that area, it's the practices that you have, the structures and the processes you put in place and really how you play. Um, because play is an important part actually of work. And so joyosity is that flourishing space where people are whole, uh, where work itself is actually a joy because it doesn't have to be this hard and where the organization is also profitable. It, it is flourishing in all the ways. It's a, a profitable space that solves problems, is a, an asset to the community and to its employees as an organization. And, and that's what joyosity is. And so it's that intense engagement where um, joy and work are not antithetical, they actually come together and we have a positive culture that creates this kind of space. Would love to dive even deeper into this. Uh, you know, one of the things that Matt and I talk about a lot, because, you know, as you know, I focus a lot on, on the guest and the customer side mm -hmm. of the business. And Matt focuses on the employee and the leadership side of the business. And what we often realize is we're always talking about the same things. Same the, things. The employee experience, the, the ways to deliver those are the same. And a lot of people will call their team members their internal customers and, and look at things through through that way. So creating joy in the workplace, what are what are some of the ways to, you know, to do that, to to treat your team members, your employees, as if they are customers who you want to make sure that your customers, your guests have a phenomenal experience, yeah. but the exact same thing for your team as well. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's why I talk about it in those, that category of three E's, because gosh, there's just a lot happening when you think about how you treat somebody as a customer, um, because it doesn't mean everybody is happy all the time, like to not, to not be confused, because as much as I deeply love my work, there are days where it is not happy and that's okay. Um, and so when you're talking about your internal clients or your internal customers or your employees, I like to think about it like a community. It's not a family as much as I deeply love a family, <laughs> like your family doesn't get to kick you out for job performance, you know? So whereas an organization does, a community is a little bit of a better analogy for a workplace. And so inside your community, you're honoring people as whole people. They get, they should be able to bring their whole selves to work. There are boundaries with that, but it's like the idea of welcoming somebody in that. So a couple of weeks ago, my uncle passed away and he was, I grew up with him. He's 14 months younger than my dad, his oldest daughter. And I were the same age. We went to school together the whole time. So, and I was an only child till I was like 16. So I grew up with him as a second dad. Uh, he was the softball coach for our town. Like everybody knew uncle Joe and, but I don't live in that town anymore anymore and haven't for 20 years. But even though that grief was very close, I wasn't the one that was planning the funeral. I wasn't the one that was at his hospital bedside the last four months. You know, I wasn't deeply involved in it, but I was still experiencing this grief. And I had a hard time getting my work done. 
Like it was just this kind of low level thing in the background. It wasn't, you know, like I hate to compare grief, but it wasn't like I was deeply involved. It wasn't my sister, my mom, my husband, you know, it wasn't the closest people that I live with, but it still had an impact on what was coming to work. And I work for myself. And so I could notice that and do some changes, but I, that bringing your whole self to work, recognizing that we are humans and we don't get to leave the stuff that's hard at home on the couch when we show up at the museum or we show up at our amusement park or wherever that you're working in your design factory, you welcoming people as whole people and adjusting actually creates better productivity. It seems like it doesn't like, oh, if we let them just do these things, we have this like authoritarian old school way of thinking about it. Like this is the way we get it done. We just have to keep moving forward when actually that doesn't work. Research shows us that the productivity declines if people don't take breaks, if people aren't, um, if you don't actually manage the emotions, all of that kind of stuff. So that's when I think about welcoming whole people. That's what I'm talking about. And then you have to recognize people for who they are and create a place of belonging that your skill set is different than my skill set and that is welcome i have a, a keynote where i talk about multi-generational communication and i use marvel and blockbuster as these kind of case studies of people that didn't change and what Marvel did that was so amazing out of bankruptcy they'd lost their most popular characters they had to sell off spider-man the hulk you know x-men and they took all of these random characters and are like, let's use these guys. This is who we have. Let's see what they contribute and how they can make us grow. And I just think that's such a great example of how we treat our people. These are the people that we have. Here are the skills that they have. Here's what their personalities bring. Let's, let's welcome that in. And that gives people a sense of belonging. I think that's where we have to start. Yes, you have to learn communication skills. Yes, you have to learn emotional regulation skills. Those are skills to learn and you can learn them. But we have to start with the idea that people are the heart of work. Otherwise, it doesn't actually end up working. Well, and one of the things that you talk about is leading yourself first. And you mentioned just a second ago about taking a break. And that's one of the things that I talk to a lot of people about is the fact that, you know, you're only as useful as your energy level, right? And Absolutely. if you are, if you are, you know, so run down and so burnt out that you can't function, you can't think, then you're not good to anybody. So one of the articles that you wrote a while back was um, rested leaders change the world. And yeah. I'd love to learn a little bit more about that, because one of the things, again, that I like to, to talk to people about is the fact that you need rest, you need time away. In fact, I was on a coaching call a while back, and the gentleman I was talking to just felt so overwhelmed and everything. I'm like, I'm going to hang up now and you go to a park. Just get off the phone, get outside, get some fresh air. So tell me a little bit more about that, uh, that article. Yeah. So when we think about rest, especially in our Western culture, we, we make a few fundamental errors. One is we confuse it with recreation. I know this is a hard audience to say that too, <laughs> but recreation isn't necessarily rest. The other thing we confuse it with is um, we need to earn it. Like in order to have rest, it has to be earned. I know when I was a kid, you had to get your work done first and then you could play. And uh, sometimes that meant helping at my grandparents' restaurant. Sometimes that meant my homework, but there was no play until work was done. Now, 
my cousins and I, we did a lot of play while working, but in general, we have this idea that you have to earn rest. And I think those are two fundamental errors that rest and recreation are the same thing. And then we have to earn rest and really rest is recognizing that we are limited humans. And if we don't recognize our limits, we overfunction, we overextend and we become ineffective. And so recognizing that you can work within your limits creates a space where you actually flourish. If I, you know, when you go to the edge of a cliff or something, and there's not that um, nice little railing there, I'm going to, I'm the person that's going to stay a couple steps back from the edge. (laughs) I'm like, I'm not so sure where the boundary is. That feels unsafe. Um, And when you push yourself past your limits, you literally will run off the cliff. So recognizing that there is a boundary there and creating your own fence about it, like this is where I stop, will make you so much more effective. And so that looks a lot of different ways. And rest, I like to teach three basic concepts of rest that everybody needs in addition to sleep. Um, Sleep is for everyone. I could do an entire podcast on the amount of sleep that you need. Um, And we just think people who like the concept of sleep when you're dead is so harmful is I could, I'm not going to get on my soapbox anyway. So (laughs) sleep, but um, other practices that you can do are really taking mini breaks throughout the day to check in with yourself. And just like, okay, where, where am I? How do I feel about this? What's, what's it going? Do I need to adjust anything? That's actually a form of rest to not just keep pressing forward to the next thing. I don't know about you, but I have consulted and been in a lot of agencies where zoom meeting after zoom meeting, after meeting, after meeting, like it's just, I have a 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock and a 12 o'clock. And there is literally no break in between. And that's not really humanly possible to transition so fast. We weren't designed for that. So a moment to rest includes kind of like, what did I just do? Okay, now what do I need to do next? So I even will give myself a minute, which sounds like ridiculous, like just a minute, but just a minute is enough when you shut one Zoom or leave one meeting in the office to then go to the next, you actually can reset. So little mini breaks throughout the day. The other thing is using your vacation. Like there is this idea like that, well, do you really need to take that time off? Like we have to demonstrate why we need our PTO. When you signed up to work, you didn't actually sign up to give your life away. Part of your compensation is paid time off. And because research shows that people who take their vacations are more profitable as leaders, we should encourage people to take their time off. And so getting time away, it can be super challenging and it doesn't always mean a vacation. It's because sometimes people are like, they're so keyed up about all the activity they did on vacation. They didn't actually rest because again, that recreation thing. Um, but when you go on vacation, I really try to help clients, both corporate and individual coaching clients take, don't take your computer turn your email off your phone, set up your out of office so people know, and please for all that's holy, do not tell people I'm on PTO, but if you need something, please call me here. Don't do that. Cause that then you're, you are literally in the back of your brain, kind of in this steady state of anxiety. You may not label it as anxiety. So let's call it being aware and on guard that somebody might call. You can't actually rest. And it research has shown that it takes about three days for you to disconnect, which is why the weekend isn't quite long enough 
And so like a four, five, six day break is so much better because it takes you about the first three days to unwind and disconnect from technology, from the workload, all of that kind of work. So depending on your vacation time, I think Europe has a great idea of taking off a couple weeks, but if you can take two, one weeks during the year, that's really helpful for you to unwind, reset, come back. So those mini breaks, don't be available on your vacation and then making sure that you take care of your, your physical needs is a huge part of rest, making sure that you are sleeping, you get enough water. Um, some toxins, the only way they get out stress toxins are, um, through water and the way it exits. And so drinking enough water actually helps you rest. And those types of things are really important practices in addition to physical activity, meditation, silence, solitude, the outdoors, all those things are, are wonderful ways to rest. Having fun um, is another way to rest. Um, rest doesn't necessarily mean sitting on the couch and watching Netflix. Sometimes rest is sitting in your garden. Sometimes rest is a hike. Sometimes rest is a Ferris wheel, <laughs> you know, and, and we just, but it, noticing what you need is the important part of rest. And so when you do that, the reason you change the world is you discover your limits, you become more productive. And then the ripple effect is you help the people around you rest. So if we are all rested, we're not as cranky. We have better emotional regulation. We're more creative. We're more innovative. That's what changes the world. And so that's why I think rested leaders change the world. <laughs> That's awesome. Well said. Thank you so much for, for just sharing all that. I totally agree with that. And even when I think like personally, any really good idea that I've ever had never came from me like sitting in front of my computer. It was out ever. Walk. It was out for you know a drive. It was in a state where I was disconnected from work in some way, shape, or form. Uh so I'd actually love to actually kind of learn more about maybe the the productivity aspect of it or, or what mm -hmm. happens there. What it also reminds me of, I, I took um I, I subscribed to like the masterclass platform and I okay, took yeah. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's the uh, American biographer and, and historian. Mm -hmm. She had a whole unit on that. And she gave like examples of just like all these like massive like presidential initiatives. She was like, Teddy Roosevelt was on a hike in the woods when he came up with this yeah. idea and then yeah. came back to the White House and, and would implement it. So we'd kind of love to talk about, all right, once, you know, once you're rested, like mm -hmm. how that actually like genuinely really turns into productivity, whether it is, you said everyone in the workplace being rested, but how this actually turns into new ideas that benefit the business and everything. Absolutely. So when you are not rested, a few things are happening physiologically. So if you have, you haven't closed what's called the stress cycle. So when we get stressed, we're designed to not be in a state of homostasis or evenness all the time. We're designed to have stress and release it and have stress and release it. If you're not rested, you maintain this high level of stress inside your body. And so getting rid of that stress literally frees up brain space. That's like, that's why you start to become more productive is when you close that stress cycle. Um, and so there's all kinds of executive functioning practices that we do. We make lists, you know, we run hard that closes the stress cycle. We laugh with people, you know, all those kinds of things literally frees up brain space. So when you have more space neurologically, you tend to create more and our brains are really funny because they're really designed to keep us safe. So when our brain is on high alert, if you're in a high state of stress, we're really thinking about safety. We're not thinking about what could we do 
next. And so that's why your best idea came when you weren't staring at your computer, Teddy Roosevelt on a hike. I, you know, I have the same thing. I have um, a tree in my backyard and I was out there kind of, there's ivy on it. And I was pulling some things and I was like, this is what I need to do. And it's because I felt safe. And so because I was, I was rested and my brain wasn't on high alert, I could create better. So that's the first aspect of it. You literally have more brain space. The other thing is genuinely emotional regulation and the way you communicate with other people. I don't know about you, but in my house around 530, when my kids were little, it was, I called it the witching hour. Everybody was hangry. My husband didn't get home from work. I was an educator. So I got home, you know, like at three, I have all four of the kids. We're waiting for him for dinner because that's how our family works. And we wanted to eat dinner together. And everybody is like, there are tears. Things are falling apart. Um, Sid, the science kid wasn't on today and we just didn't know how to cope. And, And we think that's just for kids, but that's actually adults too. When we're not rested or we're hungry or we're not taking care of our physical needs, our emotional regulation kind of goes out the window. And when you can't modulate your emotions, communicating with other people becomes challenging. And every new idea is a struggle. Every new idea has a risk. Every new idea has to kind of be worked out and kind of fought through, not with each other, you know, again, two of us together. Um, But that innovation takes a lot of, well, I think this, well, I think this, let's try this. So feeling safe gets the idea and being able to emotionally regulate and communicate clearly increases your productivity because you're not hangry, overly emotional, you know, all of those types of things. So Jen, one of the things I'm curious about, because you do talk a lot about culture and, you know, joyosity is a big part of that, is that a lot of times the culture that a leader has may not match up with the culture that they want, right? Or that they can envision. Yes. So I know that this could be a much longer discussion, <laughs> but just, sure. just curious, like if somebody says, hey, this is the culture we have, but this is the culture we want, mm-hmm. what are some of those steps that they take to kind of write that ship? It's a great question. So um, I was talking with a potential client actually having the same conversation. So she's describing the internal store culture. It's a very large department store. um, And what they can see what they want because corporate actually is talking about the culture that they want, but their individual store hasn't yet, sorry, hasn't yet moved over to that new, that new cultural space for a host of reasons. So I was asking a lot of questions and a lot of them are why questions and some of them are what questions. So why do you think that the culture is having a hard time changing? What are some of the roadblocks that you see to that? And so identifying the roadblocks are the first way to then start to change the culture. Actually, you first have to know where you want to go. I want this kind of culture. Otherwise you really can't see it, but then, well, what's getting in my way in this particular store, they had basically, if you sold a lot, if you had a $3 million book of business as a salesperson, you could behave however you wanted. So, I mean, lots of cultures can identify with that. The high performer gets to be a toxic person and the Harvard business school, a couple of years ago, put out this study that said that the toxic person actually costs you more than even your highest performer. So it doesn't matter what their business results are. If they aren't behaving well with other people, you know, plays nice with others, (laughs) then they're actually a drain on your business. So, um, First, identifying what are the roadblocks, not necessarily the person, but what are the issues? So in this case, it was a culture of um, gossip was allowed to just reign. 
uh, that you could you couldn't actually confront somebody if they were a high performer. The they a manager wouldn't be backed up by upper management when they enforced some kind of accountability. So those were the biggest roadblocks. So identifying what those are is the first step, and then you might know what's next. So I was asking her, well, what can you do before you bring me in to help you? What are some things? And so she came up with a couple really great ideas. And so starting small is important. If you are the leader who has a lot of decision-making power, you actually can change a culture. You get everybody together and you're like, let's hash this out. What do we actually want to create and how do we get there? Now it's not overnight, but I like to think of culture as a starting as the leader as a reservoir and you as a leader taking care of yourself again rested leaders taking care of yourself as a reservoir the overflow comes out to your people and what you want to create is a canal because culture is going to happen so what comes out can be a river which follows the path of least resistance which makes rivers and men crooked or you can make a canal which is here is the way the water is going to flow to get us where we want to go and so you have to build the canal. It does take some time. I wish I knew how long like the Suez or a Panama Canal took. I don't, I don't but it takes some time. <laughs> and so have those kind of expectations, but the roadblocks, identifying what they are and deciding where you want to go. Those are the first steps to really saying, here are our values. Here's where we want to go. How can we line up our actions with those values? What's getting in our way? And how can we get over those roadblocks? Mm -hmm. And so it's not always easy work, but when you start with that and you, you start to get people on board because they're like, oh, you're trying to be aligned. And people leave when they say, when people say one thing and do another, that's when people leave. So if you are admitting, hey, we've, we haven't done this well in the past, that great leader I talked about at the beginning, he came on in a change space. And so he was like, we're doing this and get on the bus or get run over. And it was not the best approach. And a couple of years later, he was like, that was the wrong approach. I should have invited you into this process and I didn't. So a leader who could say, hey, I'm recognizing the thing I wanted to create. I did it in a way that doesn't create that thing. And so recognizing your mistakes as a leader and moving forward, people will get on, they will get on the bus with you to keep that analogy because they see that humanity and the transparency. This comparison between the the river and the canal, I think it, it, uh, it just resonates so well because you think of, well, that's, that's how these people are. I can't control how they're going to act. Or you say, no, I'm, you know, as the leader, I'm the reservoir. I can, I can direct where, you know, where the canal is going. So mm -hmm. really appreciate that. Um, and I feel like we blinked and we have gotten close to the end of the interview here. This just went by so quickly. Uh, but Jen, if people want to learn more about Joyosity, if they want to connect with you or get a hold of you directly, where would you send them? Yeah. So I love to connect with people. So I play the most on LinkedIn and Instagram. I always call LinkedIn the business up front. Um, Instagram is kind of party in the back. And uh, so um, I, so I'm at Jen Whitmer, um, Jen underscore Whitmer on Instagram, but you can find everything at jenwhitmer.com. So Jen with two N's, J-E-N-N-W-H-I-T-M-E-R. And jenwhitmer.com has some free resources for you. So if you'd like to go to jenwhitmer.com slash freebies, there's always my latest 
this free resource. I've got a quiz about your problem solving style. There's 20 helpful phrases and difficult conversations. There's more about the Enneagram there. Um, so that's a great place to start if you're looking. And at the bottom, you know how you scroll to the bottom of the website, we've got, you know, the social links are there. You can find me. Um, and if you're looking, I would love to um, talk with you about your organization. You can sign up for some time with me. I'd love to chat with you and we can like help you get through some of those roadblocks, just like I was doing with that client before. And like just asking questions in that space, having somebody from the outside reflect back to you is incredibly powerful. And I love doing that for people. So jenwhitmer.com is the best place to find all the things. Um, I also do besides keynote speaking and consulting, I do have a small retreat for women leaders. Um, I run it one or two times a year. So depending on when you're listening to this podcast, just connect with me and ask about the retreat and um, say it's a pretty small retreat. I try to keep it under 20 women and, um, but we do this type of internal leadership work that helps you bring that joyosity back to your, back to your teams. That's awesome. We will make sure to include all of that in the, uh, in the show notes so people can click on that. Um, Jen, I just have one last question. Since we are on the Attraction Pros podcast, I can't <laughs> let you go without oh. asking you, do you have a favorite attraction or type of attraction? Okay. So I am a museum total nerd. I love a good museum. I love a museum with interactive displays and um, I will go to literally almost any museum anywhere. I do love amusement parks. Um, and so I grew up in Kansas city. So I have to say shout out to worlds of fun. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I, the most recent one that I went to that was amazing, which is actually the American writers museum in Chicago. It's on like the third floor of a building on the, off the miracle mile across from the Nutella store. And it was phenomenal. My daughter and I spent three hours there and we're like, we have to go someplace else. And it was just so fascinating and interactive. And um, so anyway, I, I love a good type of learning, immersive embodied experience. Well, I just looked up their website. I'm adding that to my list because I'm in Chicago right now. Yes. <laughs> you have to go. It's so fun. <laughs> Thank you for the, the recommendation there. Uh, Jen, this has just been a, just such a, a fantastic conversation. We're just so thankful to have the opportunity to chat with you today. And to everyone out there who is watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.